please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 114. Psalm 114 is the text we'll be in tonight. It was probably the summer of maybe 2005 when I had one of the greatest disappointments in my short little third grade life. Uh, Growing up, my family and I would take an annual trip to Santa Cruz and we'd spend about a week or so uh, by the beach. Well, one year, I was convinced that I had built the greatest sandcastle to ever exist. I had the combination of wet sand and dry sand down to a science. I, I built a defensive wall that was higher than the highest point in my sandcastle to keep out any intruders. And then I built a moat around the entire sandcastle in case any water got too close. It was awesome. This sandcastle was forged with the, the blood, sweat, and tears of a very determined little second grade Riley. And to my little brain, it was the perfect sandcastle. It was basically in my head a real castle, and it was awesome, and I loved it, and I was 1,000% sure that it would be there the next year I went to that beach. 100% sure. And then, next year, when we showed up to that fateful beach in the summer of 2005, maybe 2006, I learned the very, very hard lesson that I was really, really dumb. I was very, very dumb. I thought that my sandcastle could face 365 days of ocean wave after ocean wave after ocean wave and be totally fine. I thought my little hands and my little brain and my little moat would be able to stand up to the Pacific Ocean. 352 quintillion gallons of water. I don't even know what that means, but I googled it and apparently that's how much water is in the ocean. There's not a chance that my sandcastle was going to be able to last a year, let alone probably a single night as it sat there on the shore of the ocean. Because as the the tides changed and the waves kept on coming and and the wind kept on blowing, my sandcastle just didn't even stand a chance. It was totally and completely foolish and childish for me to think that I could challenge the ocean. And you don't have to have watched your prized sandcastle vanish in order to to understand that, right? It's estimated that a thousand people die every single year in U.S. waters alone. Uh, There's this really beautiful outlook spot in Kauai, called the Queen's Bath, and it's situated on a cliff, and it it looks out into the ocean, uh, and it's beautiful, but the tide can change so fast at the Queen's Bath that almost 40 people have died there in just 30 years trying to enjoy the view from that spot. The sheer unstoppable power of the ocean is something that we all know very, very well, and it's that kind of common sense fact that makes Psalm 114 so remarkable. Psalm 114 
is wild. (laughs) Not only does the psalmist give eyes and legs to the ocean in his creative mind, but he talks to the ocean. And he doesn't just talk to the ocean, he taunts the ocean. The the psalmist provokes and jeers at and, and almost teases the ocean and a river and mountains and hills. This psalm is some kind of cosmic and pure and holy version of trash talk. And it's awesome. And, and what makes this, this psalm not just awesome, but also so precious and so sweet and so encouraging for us is that it all centers around God's saving purposes. The psalmist isn't just taunting to be obnoxious. He, he's not just using his, his language and his metaphor and his figurative language to be memorable. He, he's using it to make a point about God's unstoppable purpose to deliver his people and to dwell with them forever. In this psalm, the psalmist is like, it's, he's like goading on the earth. And he's saying, let's see you try and stop God from saving his people. It's incredible, but it's not just cool. It's not just memorable. It is deeply meaningful for our souls. If you've ever struggled with your assurance of salvation, then this is a psalm for you. If you've ever struggled with feeling hopeless or or weary or tired in your battle against sin, God put this psalm in the Bible for you because it shows his unstoppable power to save. Maybe you feel like you're right now in a spiritually dry season. Maybe you need to be reminded of the glory of God. Maybe you need to be reminded of the gratitude that God deserves. Maybe you just need to grow your estimation of who God is. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And maybe you look around and you see Christians and you wonder why in the world they're so hopeful when nothing seems to be going right for them. The truth of Psalm 114 is the reason for our hope. Whoever you are, this psalm is for you because it uniquely and beautifully and and breathtakingly puts God on display. And and it does so with this incredible and and holy audacity. This song is is a song that is to be sung with, with a boldness and a courage that is unique to God's people. And it's a song for us that if we understand it, it will grow in our hearts a good and a godly confidence. It's not a confidence that is prideful or presumptuous or, or self-righteous. It is a confidence, though, that is resolute and unmoved because of God's powerful presence. Psalm 114 is a psalm for God's people to find confidence through God's presence. It's a psalm for God's people to find confidence through God's presence. And we're going to see that through three scenes in this psalm. The structure of the psalm is kind of like a sandwich. Uh, Scholars call it a a chiasm, but I like sandwich, so I'm going to go with sandwich. Uh, Basically, a, a chiastic psalm is when the middle of the psalm is kind of like the apex, and 
you move out from the middle and you've got these, these parallel statements that, that kind of complement each other. And our psalm is pretty short. So the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm are in parallel. And then in the middle, you get this, the, the DNA, the, the kind of defining trait of Psalm 114. And so if you look at it, we have eight verses. Uh, verses 1 and 2 are paralleled with verses 7 through 8. And then verses 3 through 6 are sort of this uh, emphatic and, and uh, highlighted tone of the song. The, 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 the middle is, is the emphasis that the psalm wants us to walk away with. And verses 1 through 2 and 7 through 8 are kind of the setting. And so that's where our three scenes come from. They, they follow the structure of this psalm, and I'll give the, the scenes to you up front. Verses 1 through 2 is scene 1, God arrives. Scene 1, God arrives. Verses 3 through 6 is scene 2, God intimidates his creation. And verses 7 through 8 is scene 3, God displays his character. Three scenes that together make up this psalm and, and in help instill a confidence in our hearts because of the presence of God. And, and as we read this psalm together, we're going we're gonna to watch these three scenes unfold and we're going to follow the psalmist on this journey of reminiscence about what God has done in the past that turns into an unshakable confidence. And since his God is our God, my prayer is that his confidence would become our confidence. Let's read Psalm 114 together and join the psalmist in challenging the universe to try and stop God from saving his people. Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Our opening scene is verses 1 and 2, and we watch as God arrives. First, in Egypt. Uh, the psalm opens immediately with a reference to the Exodus, a reference to the Exodus, and the memory that this would have sort of brought up for, for Jewish readers was that whole fiasco with Pharaoh. Basically, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, and then Pharaoh says no a bunch of times, and then he's like, actually, yeah, sure, but then he's like, psych, no, come back, and that turns out to be a gigantic, colossal mistake because God does what God wants to do. And so despite Pharaoh's best efforts to keep the Israelites in slavery, verse 1 says that Israel went out from Egypt. That first phrase parallels the next one in verse 1, which says, the house of Jacob went out from a people of strange language. It's talking about the same event here. Uh, the psalmist calls Israel the, the house of Jacob, and it's a way for him to, to remind his readers of the, the unity, the oneness they have in, in Jacob's lineage as the, the promised people of God. And then he calls the Egyptians a, a people of strange language. And 
this isn't some sort of like xenophobic slight uh, against the Egyptians, to be clear. This is simply the, the psalmist calling to mind the conditions of Egyptian oppression. The, the Israelites were, were slaves, but they were also aliens in a foreign land. Uh, they were outsiders. Uh, they didn't know the language around them, and so every day they were reminded that the place they lived was not their home. And so verse 1 is recalling these conditions of slavery, but really it's focusing especially on the moment when Israel went out from Egypt, the moment that they left Egyptian oppression. And, and it really is almost impossible to overstate how important that moment is in the Bible. Apart from the saving work of Jesus in the Gospels, this moment of the Exodus is the apex of deliverance in all the Bible. In fact, God uses what happened in the Exodus to set a precedent for what salvation was going to look like for the rest of history. Salvation will always follow the pattern that the Exodus set. It will always look like God graciously and powerfully and by his own initiative saving his people from a bondage and a slavery that they couldn't save themselves from. It's always going to look like God saving his people who didn't deserve it, who would actually go on and sin and rebel after being saved, and yet God remains faithful. In this short little verse, the psalmist recalls the greatest salvation event in history until Jesus. You, you cannot overstate the importance of this event, and yet the event itself isn't even really the main focus. The real focus is verse 2. Because when, verse 1, the exodus happened, verse 2, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. You see, it's not so much the, the event of, of liberation or, or exit from Egypt that's in focus in this scene. Uh, if this is like a movie, the actual action of leaving Egypt is, is really just the background. It's setting the stage for what's at the forefront. And what is at the forefront? It's God being with his people. It's God's arrival, not just to Egypt to, to humiliate Pharaoh, but it's God's arrival to be intimately and sovereignly present with his people. That intimacy mingled with, with, with authority is what's emphasized in verse 2 through those words sanctuary and dominion. Sanctuary literally means holy place. And so God's people become a holy place because that's where God is. That They are a place that is set apart from the world for worship. And then that word dominion emphasizes the, the authority and the power and the command of God. And so if God's people become his dominion, then verse 2 is saying that the king is here. The king has arrived to his kingdom to rule and to reign. And so the major emphasis here is not really Israel's liberation. Israel's liberation is, is really just the setting the major emphasis is on God's arrival to be with his people as their God and their king. In other words, 
the emphasis is not on Israel's salvation, but on Israel's Savior. The emphasis is not on Israel's salvation, but on Israel's Savior. And already, the psalmist gives the people of God a reason to be confident. And we're going to elaborate on this point later, but do you see how the moment of your salvation is just the beginning? Uh, Do you see how, how the escape from Egypt is really just the first domino? Because God doesn't just save his people, God loves his people. And he loves them so much so that when he liberates them from Israel, he makes them his sanctuary. And and though he sits enthroned in the heavens, he brings his good and his perfect and his gracious and his kind rule and reign to those that he saves. If you're a Christian here today, if you've experienced the saving work of God through Jesus Christ in faith, then be assured that God is still with you. Be assured that he has never and he will never forsake you. Because where God delivers, he will also dwell. Your body has become a temple for the Lord. Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. You are not just a forgiven sinner, but praise God that you are. You're not just an adopted child of God through Christ, but praise God that we are. You are the very dwelling place of God. And so if you are a Christian, you can be confident that your soul is secure in the hands of God because he did not leave you when he first delivered you. And he will not leave you for the rest of eternity. That is our hope, and that was the hope of Israel after the exodus. God arrived not only to save Israel, but also to be with them. And it's this saving and faithful and lasting presence of God that is the focus for the psalmist in this first scene of God's arrival. And with that emphasis in mind, the the saving, lasting, faithful presence of God, the screen kind of fades to black, and then the second scene appears And quite abruptly, verses 3 through 6 is seen to God intimidates his creation. Now remember, uh, this psalm is a psalm for the the confidence of God's people, right? It's a psalm to encourage you. It's a psalm to help you finish the race, to, to persevere and to press on and to run well. So why in the world does the psalmist start talking about the oceans? Why does he start talking about mountains and rivers and hills? And not just talking about them, but talking to them. Why doesn't he just just give us more theology? Just teach us more stuff? Why, why, Why not just tell us again that God will be with us? Or why not tell us that God God will not forsake you? Great question. Glad you asked. Because it's true. The the second scene of God intimidating his creation doesn't really add any new data. Uh, The psalmist isn't telling us like a a theological, hard fact kind of truth like he did in verse 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we learned that, that cold, hard fact that God liberated his people and then he dwelt with his people. But that's not what the psalmist does in verses 3 through 6. 
instead of giving you another separate truth to think about, the psalmist wants to go deeper in on that same truth. If verses 1 and 2 were like him setting the nail, then verses 3 through 6 are like him picking up a hammer and grabbing that hammer and pounding and pounding and pounding to get this truth embedded so deep in your heart that you couldn't take it out if you wanted to. That's what he's doing in this scene. That's how, how memorable and profound these verses are. Read them with me, verses 3 through 6. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. I can't tell you how many times I have read those verses this week, and it just hasn't gotten old. I just love them so much. I, I mean, think about this, okay? The, the psalmist here personifies the ocean and personifies the Jordan River and mountains and hills just so that he can taunt them. He imagines them to be creatures with brains and eyes and ears just so that he can tease them. What's the point? Well, as I said, the psalmist is embedding that truth deep in our hearts, that, that we can be confident in God's faithful presence, not just to save, but to be with us forever. And so the psalmist makes a list of some of the things that have tried to get in the way of that. He's made a list of some challengers to God's purpose. First challenger, the sea. Listen to Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When the sea got in the way of Israel leaving Egypt and God making his sanctuary with them, that's what happened. The psalmist imagines that the Red Sea has eyes and with its eyes, the Red Sea sees a group of people coming towards it. And then the Red Sea realizes that that is God's people. And God is doing a work to save them. And God has decided to dwell with them. And the Red Sea thinks to itself, oh shoot. I'm not getting in the way of that. I got to get out of here. Psalm 114.3, the sea looked and fled. Could the sea interrupt God's plan 
to deliver and dwell with his people? Not even close. How about the Jordan River? Listen to Joshua 3.14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, the waters coming down from above stood up and rose up in a heap very far away, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Sounds a lot like the Red Sea, doesn't it? Not only did God deliver his people from Egypt, God also promised that his people would inherit a land and they had to cross the Jordan River to get there. The Jordan was notorious for hazardous rapids and for flooding and it would have been impossible for Israel to cross. But God's purposes cannot be stopped. When God's people show up, the psalmist imagines the Jordan to act just like the Red Sea and to turn back in fear. And this is quite a while, actually, after the Exodus. Uh, The leader of Israel at the time of the Exodus was Moses, and he had since died, and Joshua had taken his place. And so a lot had changed in Israel by the time they get to the Jordan, but what hadn't changed was God's purposes for them and God's presence with them. And so like the Red Sea, the Jordan got out of the way in submission to God. So could, could the Jordan River derail God's will? Absolutely not. Verse 4 says that the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. This is most likely a reference to the, the mountains and the hills that were all over Canaan, which was the, the promised land beyond the Jordan River. And that makes a lot of sense because of the progression of these verses, right? It starts in Egypt And it starts with with Israel leaving Egypt, and then uh, they get to the Jordan River on on the banks of the Jordan as they're about to cross, and then verse 4 is is beyond the Jordan. It's after they've crossed and and they've landed in the promised land of Canaan. And verse 4 has the exact same tone as verse 3. God's people show up to the land, and the mountains and the hills in the land start getting scared like livestock. Like, like rams and lambs skipping in fear. And we don't spend a lot of time with rams or with lambs. Um, but have you ever seen a cat get startled? Uh, there's these videos all over the internet of, of like a cat owner putting a cucumber behind a, a cat without it knowing. And then the cat will like turn around and see the cucumber and it thinks it's a snake. And so the cat jumps like four feet in the air and just like springs out of there. And I guess four feet isn't a, a lot, but when you're one foot tall, it, it kind of is. And, and so it's, kind of, it, it's, it's hilarious, and you should look it up, not right now. But that's the picture of what's going on in verse 4. The psalmist imagines that God's people show up in the land of Canaan, and the mountains and the hills start jumping out of the way like a frightened lamb. Also, the mountains and the hills were where the Canaanites thought their false gods lived. So not only is the psalmist showing God's supremacy to nature, the psalmist is poking fun at fake Canaanite gods. 
He's saying, my God makes your God look like a bunch of cowering livestock. That's the scene that the psalmist is painting here. It's God showing up on earth and intimidating the very creation that he made from the sea to the river to the mountains to the hills. And it all displays the complete invincibility of God's purposes, specifically of God's saving purposes to be with his people. And so with that confidence, with the confidence of God's invincible purposes, the psalmist launches into verses 5 and 6, taunting the earth that he just personified. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back, mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. One commentator says of this verse, the playful comments seem to be stated with a twinkle in the eye and a hint of laughter in their articulation. Another one says this, the psalmist laughs with delight at the majesty of Yahweh, like a child exulting over the way his favorite player just shamed some opponent. You see what I mean by like a a cosmic holy trash talk? This is a basketball player standing over the guy he just dunked on and walking over him. It's a football player dancing in the end zone and smiling at the camera after a touchdown. This is the psalmist saying, what's the matter, earth? What's the matter, Red Sea? Why are you running? Is that really all you got? Do you feel the audacity of these verses? It's a taunt and tease the most powerful and unrelenting forces of nature. That's what it's like when the king of kings makes his dominion with you. That's what it's like when the Lord of lords makes you his very sanctuary. This is what it is like when the sovereign God of the universe has come to save. Nothing will stop God's purposes to be with his people. You see, this theology is, is woven through the pages of scripture. It's everywhere and it is beautiful. Whether it was God on his initiative seeking out Adam when he first sinned in the garden or God promising that that he will never leave nor forsake Israel in Deuteronomy or whether it was God saying I will be with them and they will be my people in Jeremiah or God himself arriving on the earth in the face of Jesus Christ And Matthew 1 says that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Does your soul have courage and confidence because the God of Psalm 114 is nearer to you than ever before? Listen to the words of Jesus himself in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul picks up on this theology in those famous verses at the end of Romans 8, right? Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
It's the same theology in, in Philippians when Paul says, he who began a good work will complete it. And it is the truth that enables the psalmist to confidently ask the sea, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? God's redemptive purposes in history have always been challenged. Over and over and over, they have been challenged. Pharaoh tried and failed. The sea tried and failed. The rivers and the mountains tried and failed. Babylon tried and failed. The the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried and failed. King Herod tried and failed. Pilate tried and failed. The Roman soldiers who, who crucified Jesus and the Roman soldiers who guarded his tomb tried and failed. And GOC, you and I tried and failed. Colossians 1.21 says that we were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. But Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us anyways. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. We all once hated God. We all once tried to live out our own will. We tried to reject the authority of God, but praise be to God that we failed. Praise be to God that by his own initiative and by his own power, he saved us as we ran straight to the pit of hell. And praise be to him that the same power that delivered us is the power that will keep us. If you're here today and you haven't submitted your life to Jesus Christ in faith, then the truth of Psalm 114 should really help you to consider that choice. Maybe you have never heard that that good news that we just talked about. Maybe you've never heard that Christ paid for your sin on the cross so that even though you rejected God, you can have peace with him through faith. That is available to you now. Or maybe you have heard and, and you refuse to submit to the will of God. Maybe you refuse to submit your life to God and if that's you, Psalm 114 is a reminder that there is a reason to fear God. The sea and the rushing rivers can kill the body, but God has authority over your eternal soul. And so it would be wise to take a cue from the universe, learn from the universe, and submit your will to the will of God. He has authority over your soul, either to condemn or to save. Stop your rebellion and your rejection and trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the cross, there is eternal peace for you with an eternal God who is powerful and awesome and dangerous. The psalmist answers his own rhetorical question that he posed in verses 5 and 6 through verses 7 and 8. And in this section of the psalm, it's our third scene, we're going to watch as God displays his character. God displays his character, verses 7 and 8. 
Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. What is it that had so frightened the sea and the Jordan and the mountains? Verse 7, the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob. In verse 7, it's almost like the psalmist is saying to the earth, you know what? You got it right. Your response in verses 3 and 4 was actually spot on. In fact, you should do it all the more. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of my God. And if you need another reason why, I'll give you one. Look at verse 8. The psalmist writes, Who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Okay, if you're like me, you read this and you're like, wait, what? After all that in verses 3 through 6, the the final concluding reason you use when you command the earth to tremble at God's presence is bringing water out of a rock? Isn't the splitting of the Red Sea, like, more awesome Uh, Isn't the the stopping of the Jordan River and the the mountains jumping just a little bit more cool? Well, if you felt that way like like me, it's because we aren't as in tune to the narrative of Israel's history as we probably ought to be. I think it's important that we see this, so take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 17 with me. Exodus 17, and we're going to see the exact moment that the psalmist references here in Psalm 114. Exodus 17, uh, the scene here is that Israel has already been liberated from Egypt. They celebrated God's triumph and salvation in Exodus 15, and then they start traveling through the wilderness, ultimately so that they can get to the promised land. But it doesn't take long for Israel to show just how undeserving of salvation they are. Because just three days after they leave the Red Sea, the people start to grumble and complain about how hard the journey is. Just three days after the most jaw-dropping display of, of power and authority and provision, Israel starts to whine. Israel starts to, to complain and grumble because they get hungry and thirsty. And in chapter 16, God provides for them anyways. And then in chapter 17... They do the exact same thing. Read with me Exodus 17, starting in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, compared to the splitting of an ocean and the stopping of a river, bringing water out of a rock isn't the most show-stopping miracle. Uh, Maybe it's not as movie-like, but what it is, is a profound display of God's patience and God's mercy and his loyal, steadfast love. God saved his people when it was impossible. And what does he get in return? Not worship, not honor, not praise, not gratitude. He gets complaint. He gets anger. He gets disbelief. He gets his people saying, you know what, God? Thanks for doing all that at the Red Sea, but I want to go back to Pharaoh. I want to go back to Egypt. And what's God's response to to such a sin like that? God's response is patient provision. Did they deserve it? Not in the slightest, but remember, this psalm is about the invincibility of God's purposes. And so even despite the most embarrassing and prideful and wicked state of Israel, God uses his unlimited power and and he bends the universe beneath his will for one last time in Psalm 114 so that he can provide for the people that he has chosen to love. Not because they were lovely in any way, but because God's purpose will not be stopped. They tested God saying, is the Lord among us or not? And God responds by saying, yes, I am. Not because you deserved it. In fact, you just proved that you don't deserve it. You just proved that that you are the last people who deserve my grace but I am among you because I have chosen to set my steadfast love upon you. If God were as every bit as powerful as Psalm 114 shows him to be, but he did not purpose to save his people, we would all be in very, very big trouble. But God is powerful and purposefully gracious and he has chosen to use his power to gather for himself a people of every tribe and tongue and nation so that the praise of his glorious grace would echo throughout eternity and it started with his faithfulness to Israel and so it's not just the powerful presence of God that the earth trembles at although it does Psalm 114 shows that it is the particular saving presence of God that shakes the earth in reverence. Psalm 114 is a psalm that the Jews would have sung during Passover. Uh, So for them, it had kind of a twofold purpose. For them, it would have been a song to celebrate salvation in the past, And it would have been a song to to point to a salvation in the future. 
It, it reminded them of what God has already done, and so it was a, a cause for joyful singing. But it also meant to give them a, a steadfast hope in their souls because God had not forgotten them since he delivered them. It was meant to instill a, a confidence in their heart that was not of themselves, but that was firmly rooted in the character of God, which is on display in these verses. God has always been a God who is not just powerful, but perfectly, perfectly faithful. I, I imagine that the psalmist wrote this psalm with a, with a smirk, just with, with a joy and a, and a happiness that overcame him as he recalled how unstoppable God's plan was and always will be. And for some of you here today, this psalm can be a corrective for you. It can help you recalibrate where your confidence lies. Follow the example of the psalmist and, and spend time, even tonight, just meditating deeply and thoughtfully on the works of God and draw confidence only, only from him. There is no room for, for self-confidence in Psalm 114. The way it ends is a reminder of that, isn't it? It would only take all of us a few days, three days at most, to be just like the Israelites and go back to Egypt. You see, your confidence cannot be built on your own holiness or your own grit or your own resolve. Your confidence must be found in God and in God alone. For others of you, maybe it's not overconfidence or confidence in yourself that you struggle with, but, but an insecurity. Maybe there's a part of you that feels like you're just a few sins away from making God change his mind. And if that's you, you must take your sins seriously. If that's you, you must fight. You must take up your cross daily and you must throw off every weight and sin that clings so closely, but not to secure your place with God. You must fight and hate and kill your sin, not to solidify your standing or your place before God, but to honor it. You can be broken over your sin and yet still have this kind of, of confidence in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. You can still be, be sorrowful, sorrowful, deeply sorrowful in repentance and yet have the, the, the same confidence that the psalmist has that knows that when God delivers somebody, he dwells with them. He does not abandon them. He does not forsake them. If you're a Christian, your soul will never be abandoned. So live like it. Repent confidently, not irreverently, not casually, but boldly approach the throne of grace knowing that when you run to your Father in repentance, he will grant you forgiveness because though our sins are many, his mercy is so, so much more. There are few displays of the unstoppable saving presence and power of God more memorable than this one 
in Scripture. And as you reflect on, on God's dwelling with his people, as you reflect on, on God bending the universe at his will to accomplish his good purposes, it's my prayer that your heart would be confident on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever.